At Morgan Stanley, old school hard work meets bold new thinking. At 88 years old, we still see the world with the wonder of new eyes, helping you discover untapped possibilities and relentlessly working with you to make them real. Old school grit, new world ideas. Morgan Stanley. To learn more, visit morganstanley.com slash why us. Investing involves risk. Morgan Stanley Smith Barney, LLC. I'm Scott Wapner, and you're listening to CNBC's Halftime Report, the podcast, the most profitable hour of the trading day. We record this live weekdays at 12 Eastern. Listen in. Welcome to the Halftime Report. I'm Scott Wapner, front and center this Friday. Why one major market watcher says the bottom is in, at least for one part of your portfolio. We'll debate the call, see if our investment committee agrees, and discuss where your money goes from here now. Joining me for the hour today, Shannon Sakosha is the chief investment officer at Boston Private Wealth. Degas Wright, the chief investment officer of Decatur Capital Management. Liz Young is the head of investment strategy at SoFi. Rich Saperstein, Hightower Treasury Partners, the CIO. He is also one of Barron's top 100 financial advisors. Pete Nigerian is here, too. It's great to see everybody. Let's go to the wall, see where stocks are. They continue to bounce. You heard Carl say best two-day gain for the Dow since March 8th. Dow's good for 270, three-quarters of a percent. Look at the NASDAQ, a near 2% gain, 241 points for the NASDAQ. All right, Liz Young, Tom Lee, our friend Tom Lee. He says the bottom is in at least for small caps and epicenter stocks, not necessarily for technology. He says the VIX, after surging 78%, has fallen more than 20% in the past day. He calls that a VIX peak, says that equals a market bottom. Do you agree? I agree that technology is likely to see some challenges going forward throughout the year. I do think that today is a little bit of an anomaly seeing the Nasdaq so strong. What happened is the market got confused by the softer retail sales and thought, oh, maybe inflation isn't going to be a huge problem in the immediate term. So we can still buy technology. We can buy those high growth stocks. I don't know that that was a peak in the VIX. I don't know that that's going to be the 2021 peak in the VIX. I think that we're going to have a rough transition as we hand the baton from policy back to fundamentals and we try to figure out whether or not stocks can stand on their own two feet. But I think that there's opportunity here. And as we look at a lot of the different industry groups that have gotten beaten up, I still think there's opportunity in them. And a lot of that was a buying opportunity. Okay, Pete Kalanovic, J.P. Morgan's Marco Kalanovic came on this program couple days ago, said selling's overdone, says the bottom's close. He thinks that's over. I mentioned a big fund manager I spoke with who dramatically took up his exposure in stocks Wednesday towards the close in the big sell-off, okay? Do you think, as Tom Lee says, the bottom is in? I don't know necessarily, Scott, that I think the bottom is in, but certainly, you know, and, and Tom also referred to the volatility. I don't know that the top is in on volatility either, Scott. I think we have a lot of different elements to this marketplace that certainly could continue to be very, very volatile, especially as we're dealing with all the different inflation uh, measures that we, we're all keeping an eye on. We're watching copper, we're watching steel, we're watching crude. You name it, we're, we're keeping a very close eye on just about everything that, that, that goes into it, including labor costs. So there are a lot of different elements, I think, that could cause some, some jerks here and there to the upside and to the downside in terms of volatility. 
But are we, are we at a bottom? I don't know that we're necessarily at a bottom. That was a pretty brief pullback, if you consider just a couple of days. But um, I do think, and I agree, I think that's an opportunity. And each and every time that we see these kind of pullbacks like we've seen, I think we, we have to view those as an opportunity because I think overall we are in a very solid market. The government obviously backing us up pretty nicely with all the stimulus. And the Fed, I, I think there's a lot of combinations that make sense on why this is uh, a market that can be bought on a lot of these sell-offs. Right, so, well. as a matter of fact, I use this opportunity to buy quite a few different but options, not stocks, because of the fact that I don't feel all that confident that I was looking at bottoms just the other day and suddenly we're actually moving to the upside. Well. I actually wouldn't be surprised to see us see some more severe drops to the downside. It's not like you're just buying anything either, Pete. You bought snowflake calls. I mean, you went right to the heart of the sell-off and bought calls in snowflake, which, by the way, gets an upgrade today at Goldman Sachs, which I thought was interesting just as a statement, perhaps, of the overall market as to whether stocks like that have come down to Far. I mean, it's corrected 34%, Pete, and you have called out these stocks. Well, not only that, You've Scott, called out the high multiple. The this high- is a stock that was $429, and then it's just come down and down and down, and it was very close to the most recent lows. It was trading about 196 this morning, and we saw some unusual option activity in there. So that was that's what helped trigger me to decide, you know what, I know the valuation levels is, is in a – position where we really don't know at what point in time where we're going to see the actual numbers uh, reflect something of a P.E. But what we do know is this is an unbelievable company. It probably was way over uh, uh, bought when we got to some of those 400 plus levels, even the 300 plus levels. But I think you can trade it. I don't know necessarily that you want to be buying the stock right now, right here. But I think at the same time, the trading opportunities that the option world has given us really do reflect something that gives you an opportunity, especially Especially if there's any continuation of what we have seen, at least today, in this nice little move that we're seeing to the upside. We were just trading 194. Then we, we saw buyers at 196. Last I looked, the stock was trading. I don't know where it is right this moment, right. but it was trading about 204. So I think that there's a lot of reasons and a lot of different names like this where I think from the options perspective, at least you have a risk reward that makes some sense. Because buying the stock, I'm not so sure that that part of it, for me at least, makes sense. Okay. Let's talk about some of these other names. I want to talk to the highly rated Barron's guy right in the middle of your screen in our Hollywood squares in the bottom in the center. That's Rich Saperstein. All right. So are your your peeps calling you up and saying, OK, Rich, Palantir's down 56 percent from its 52 week high. DocuSign's down 36 percent from its high. DraftKings 40, Peloton 43, Coinbase 38, Cloudflare 28, Roblox 14, Unity Software's 51. Should we be buying these things now? Rich Saperstein, what do you tell them? Good news is we don't own any of them. And the important thing to look at with the tech sector is dividing it into the uh, infinity multiple, the aspirational multiple, and those with really strong cash flow. So if you look at the large cap fangs, okay, their operational cash flow is running anywhere from 4 to 5%. And the S&P's operating cash flow is roughly 6%. The cash flow of these large cap fangs or these large cap tech companies is growing dramatically. In the last four years, Amazon's operating cash flow is up 265%. I think these names are in a, a whole world of their own. I wouldn't be categorizing them with the nosebleed 
P.E. multiple stocks because they're going to trade very separately. When it comes to rising interest rates impacting the tech sector, I'm okay buying these large cap tech stocks with very strong operating cash flow of 4 to 5% when we have a sub 2% uh, tenure. So if we look going forward, investors should not get caught up in or trapped in the uneven and economic volatile economic data. It's a lot of noise. We have supply chain uh, log jams. We have labor shortages, but the economy is booming. And we're going to have a very strong growth period in the U.S. in 2021. We'll have global synchronized growth in 22. And investors should be long equities okay. here. So, you know, you, you speak of those high-flying, high-multiple, high-valuation stocks, almost like with a badge of honor when you say we don't own any of those, right? You put your two thumbs up. You're, like, proud of the fact that you don't own any of those names. But it's not like the mega-cap tech stocks, Rich Saperstein, have done all that well. Alphabet's down 3.5% this week, right? Alphabet, I mean, Apple can't get out of its own way. Microsoft and Facebook are down a couple of percentage points this week. Are better days ahead for those big mega cap techs? Are we going to start to get some traction to the upside for those, do you think? Well, we take a three to five year view. So uh, I would clearly own these names for the long term. And I would be using any of these short-term pullbacks in the market to add to these positions. Investors that don't have positions in these names should make them core holdings. With regard to rounding out a portfolio, clearly you've gotta have value in there. You've gotta have materials, financials. You've gotta own some oil in this period. But I wouldn't be concerned about adding them here. Okay, so Degas, you, you must agree with Tom Lee um, that maybe the worst is not over as it relates to tech because you're reducing your tech exposure. So you think more downside is ahead. What, yes. When you're reducing it, what kinds of stocks are we talking about? Yeah, so we're talking about those stocks that uh, may have, a, for instance, we reduce uh, Apple. We're reducing Microsoft. We're reducing those companies. We have a large core holding in them, but we're taking some off the table and redeploying that into what we refer to as infrastructure stocks because we see that's where the economy is moving. As we open up, we're going to see more performance, more growth out of those companies in the energy, materials, industrials, financials. That's where we're moving to, and that's where the economy is moving to. Wow. So you're taking some money out of Apple and Microsoft. Are all the mouths agape on the screen? Right now, Degas, um, all the tech stocks that you're looking to take money out, that's where you're looking? Yes, because we had uh, overweights or equal weights to all those names. And we said that given where we are right now in the cycle, we're seeing that these companies are actually, uh, the, it's a crowded trade. Everybody owns it. So there's going to be less upside in the short term. Mm. This is a tactical trade. And so we're seeing less upside on the short term, but we can redeploy that now into those other names. Okay. Shannon, you want to take that on? What do you think about Degas's moves here in the overall conversation? Pete doesn't want any part of it. You see him waving his hands. He doesn't even want any part of it. I saw that, Pete. You got to remember the camera's always on you, pal. Shannon, go ahead. So we actually trimmed Microsoft and Apple, but we did it in November. And we did it ahead of what we felt was going to be a post-election um, pre-infrastructure um, plan 
bump in cyclical exposure. And so at this juncture, I don't know that I would be running to necessarily trim some of these names that are clearly going to benefit from an uptick in spend, both on the consumer side as well as on the business side through enterprise spending on IT. I I actually think that if you're not um, equal weight to the market or you don't have positions in some of these large cap tech names, and I'm not just talking about the fangs. I'm including names like Cisco and IBM. There are areas of technology that are not high flying, that are not trading at multiples, that require um, significant multiple expansion over the course of the next three or four quarters to justify their price. And so I I would actually be adding to some of those positions over the next couple of months if you don't have weightings, because I do believe that we're going to go into a period where a barbell between cyclical names that are going to continue to be positively correlated with economic growth, um, along with, you know, this business and consumer spending increase, which we're going to continue to see, is the right way to position your portfolio. Some of these high-flying names, Scott, to your earlier question, Absolutely, they'll be around in five to 10 years. But there's going to be consolidation, there's going to be some acquisitions, and there are going to be some players that have some missteps in some of these high-flying names. And right now for us, the prices are just still a little bit too high, even with the pullbacks that we've seen. Liz, I'm wondering, you know, given all this concern about where rates are, and I think the 10 years we showed at the very top of the show had dropped back down to 163 or, or thereabouts, you think the market has overdone this whole worry fest over in inflation. You know, I flagged your tweet the other day uh, as our jump off point because I thought it really just hit the mark. And it, it sums everything up. Fed still believes it's transitory. Speaking of inflation, the market seems to think otherwise. I loved the tweet earlier that I saw from uh, my buddy Carl Quintanilla, who says lumber down four straight sessions, copper on pace for worst week since April, retail sales miss. Tell me again about the overheating. So, Is it much ado about not that much? This week, I think it was overdone, yes. Because what we're looking at is last year was the year of market momentum. This year is the year of economic momentum. Market momentum always leads economic momentum. When you have economic momentum, inflation should be a part of that. I would argue that if inflation wasn't a part of that, something was broken. So this is what the readings should look like. But I also agree with Carl's tweet. That's why why we overdid it earlier in the week, that not all the data is showing that inflation is here and here to stay. It is still possible that it's transitory, and we have to wait until later in the year to really find that out. I don't think anybody is arguing that inflation is here, is coming. I think the real question is, what will the Fed do about it? And I don't know why there's so many people that are eager to not believe Jerome Powell and not believe what he's saying, that he'll wait. I think that if we put the Fed up against a wall and said, which mistake would you rather make? Would you rather be too early or too late? I think they'd rather be too late. So I don't think there's a huge risk of the reaction function from monetary policy officials causing us a problem. Well, they said as much too, right, Liz? I mean, how many times does Jay Powell and the rest of the gang uh, on the Fed and otherwise voters and non-voters have to come out and say, we're not tapering. We're not thinking about tapering. We're not even thinking about thinking about thinking about tapering. Not for a long time. And we're prepared to let inflation run hot past 2%. And we heard yesterday from one of the Fed speakers say, I I can't remember who it was, was like, you know what? Don't even worry about inflation until 22, 23. So that's one of the points to to take into consideration. Maybe the market's going to start believing that. And as one fund manager told me yesterday, the environment for stocks as it relates to the Fed is pretty clean until you at least get to August 
and you start having to worry about what they're going to say at Jackson Hole if inflation actually looks a little bit more sticky later in the summer, Liz. Yes, that's true. And the other thing that the Fed continues to say is that we're going to be on hold until the recovery is complete. And then you have to ask, what does that mean? To me, that means growth that is above pre-pandemic levels. That means inflation that is stable. And that means the job market is back and is healthy. And as we all know, the labor market is the one thing that continues to be an issue here. So if they're going to wait until the recovery is complete, I don't think we're at risk of a Fed move anytime in the next few months. And there's also this kind of cycle. If they start to talk about tapering, the next step is to actually taper. Then the next step is to actually move rates. They don't want to start that too early because the market reacts to it as soon as the words come out of their mouth. All right. Let's bring in our headliner today, Anthony Scaramucci. He is the managing partner at Skybridge Capital. Anthony, it's good to see you. Welcome back. Good to be here, Scott. Thanks. So you talk to a lot of of big smart money, so-called smart money. What do they think about the market right here and right now? Well, listen, I'm I'm sort of in Liz's camp on the market. I I think that you've got a little bit of overheating, but not a lot of overheating. And frankly, you can't get the inflation numbers that would scare the Fed without wage increases. And so we've been debating all week on CNBC about labor shortages and supply shortages related to labor. But if you actually look at the wage data, Scott, it's not moving. It's been sticky flat, if you will, and in some cases, sticky downward for middle and lower income people. And so until you get wage growth, you're not going to set alarm bells off at the Fed. And so I think the bull market is very much so intact. It feels like a Goldilocks situation where you're getting some price increases in commodities and it's going to lead to an acceleration of likely 24 months of economic growth. Uh, but you don't have the inflation that would scare the Fed at, the, Fed at this time, which is a reason why I think you're going to see a cycle back into those growth names that some of our panelists want to avoid. But, but the fear, though, to what you just said is that you're going to have to have wage inflation to entice some people to get back to work. And then you're going to really start to have some more sticky Inflation, And you're already seeing some major companies like McDonald's, you know, raising wages and you've seen others do the very same thing. The, the thought process is that maybe you're going to see even more. Well, listen, th- that's going to happen in a weird way. It's happening in a black market sort of way. You know, I'm obviously in the restaurant business in New York. It's hard to find people at certain prices. And remember, if you're paying $15 an hour for the dishwasher, well, then the sous chef's got to get $22 an hour. And so you're going to move the pricing umbrella for everybody when you raise wages. But I think the mistake that people are making is they're suggesting that blue collar people would rather sit at home and collect welfare. I honestly don't believe that. They're just super creative. Some of them have cash jobs, off the books jobs, black market jobs, if you will. Uh, And they're out there working. And so until you can get the price, the supply demand equilibrium to intersect with each other, they're not going to return to those jobs that they were doing pre-COVID. So I don't think people are sitting at home, Scott. I just I'm just never going to buy that argument. Well, maybe there's a multitude. Uh, Maybe there's a multitude of of reasons. I don't think we're suggesting that it's the only reason uh, because of the government support they're getting. But I think it's part of the punch bowl. Uh, if you will, as to to why we're witnessing that There's always a percentage of people like that, but I just don't think it's the greater totality. But if you're making the point that as the economy starts to accelerate, people will lift the wage ceilings that they have to get people back to work, they will. That will start to show up in the Fed's data. 
and that will raise alarm bells. You'll start seeing tapering and you'll start hearing whispers of rising rates. But remember, we had rising rates uh, for a 24 month period of time and it didn't necessarily impact stock prices. If anything, the stock market was still going up. And so I'm not super worried right now. You have had tremendous pent up consumerism the last 15 months. Uh, many people have been stuck at home. And I think that that's going to that's going to come out of the can like those snakes used to when we were kids. Right. Uh, and you're going to see a very aggressive economy over the next 24 Let months. Let me ask you this. I mean, anybody who's followed you on Twitter knows how bulled up you've been on Bitcoin lately. You have your new Bitcoin fund and you've had some major events in the last week or so, right? Elon Musk now, no Bitcoin for Tesla. I'm looking at a headline which literally moved uh, one minute before our show began. Square has, quote, no plans to buy more Bitcoin after their own $20 million loss. Uh, are you worried that we have a near-term top that was put in in, in Bitcoin? Uh, well, listen, there were, obviously was a near-term top put in. I mean, the Coinbase IPO, you had a $64,000 high on Bitcoin. Uh, it's dropped consistent with its volatility in the past. Uh, I sort of see Bitcoin as somewhat anti-fragile here. The notion that you've had this slurry of bad news and we're still at 50000 When you and I talked about Bitcoin in December, when we were launching our Bitcoin fund, uh, it was in the high teens, low 20s. So I think we have to step back a little bit and look at the forest. You've had Bitcoin uh, emerging as an asset class, going from 20,000 to, so let's say, where it is today, 50,000 in a few short months. I think that tells you that there's a tremendous amount of demand out there. You've had some bad news here. People have stepped in to buy it. There's a lot of institutional demand, Scott. You know, one of the good things that we're good at at Skybridge we have 34 managers, hedge fund managers in our core portfolio. We're tracking 1,200 managers, but we're talking to everybody on the street. There is a tremendous amount of demand long term for Bitcoin. Stan Druckenmiller said on our airways earlier in the week that he believes it's an asset class here to stay and it will be a measure of a store of value. We obviously believe that. And so we've been buying Bitcoin on these dips could we be in an interregnum period here where it trades in a trading zone where we are now? Yes. But I think with that bad news already in the stock, I think you're seeing sort of a floor in prices here. Now, of course, I could be wrong about that, but I like the long term trajectory of Bitcoin. And we're recommending to our clients, you don't have to be a Bitcoin maximalist, Scott. You can own one, two, three percent of Bitcoin included in your asset class. If we're right, you're going to be very happy with your portfolio over the next five to ten years. But how do you? Uh, how, I'm sorry to interrupt you, but how do you counter? Yeah, how, how do you counter the the narrative of, you know, everybody seems to be wanting to pitch Bitcoin, um, but it's not a store of value. How, how do you make the case that it is? How can it be when it's as volatile as it is? It may be a store of value, all right, but it's a store of fluctuating value. Listen, you have to accept that it's an emerging asset class. Think about what Elon Musk was able to do to the price of Bitcoin in the last week. You've only got about 2% global saturation right now. So we're in the very early innings of Bitcoin, if not the top of the first inning. And so I'm just looking at the metrics of what we apply to the store of value equation over 5,000 years of human history. That's scarcity. That's the trust association. That's the exponential growth of the network 
Bitcoin has all of those elements, but it's emerging and people are scared of it. And our 97-year-old great-grandfathers are saying it's the worst thing that's ever happened to civilization. But our 25-year-old kids are saying, you know, I'm going to own Bitcoin for the rest of my life. And so when you have that confluence of events, you're going to get volatility. But let's just think about Amazon for a second. Amazon, you had to suffer through seven or eight spells where Amazon dropped 50% or more before it became the Amazon of today. And if you put $10,000 in Amazon on its IPO on May 15, 1997, it's worth over $21 million today, Scott. So it takes diamond hands to hold Bitcoin right now. And I would say it's an emerging store of value. Can we look at it today and say it has all the qualities of gold? No, we cannot. But it only has 10% of the market capitalization of gold. If that network continues to expand the way we predict it will, over a billion users over the next four years, uh, I think you're going to get there. I think people are going to look back and say, well, that was an obvious investment. Why was I so scared to allow myself to get juked out of it, even if just for a small amount of it? I saw what you did there, too, with that calling out Munger and Buffett. I, I caught that. I know exactly what you're doing. Well, I, I, I was I, not you, the script. Yes, exactly. I just, you did. You did. It was a, Rich you know, Saperstein. I didn't, I didn't say they had a combined age of 187 years yeah. or anything like that. I was just focusing on the 97. I knew exactly what you were doing. Rich Saperstein, do you have something for, for Anthony Scaramucci? I mean, how do you, Rich, view Bitcoin for your own clients? They must be asking about it. And for all I know, you own some and I don't even know. So you tell us. Well, I have more of a, a, a normalization question where, uh, you know, our goal as market participants is to operate in a market without the support of the fiscal and the monetary policies. And now we're slowly getting into the position where uh, the fiscal spend that might be coming is viewed negatively, as if it's too much, we have enough stim. And then on the monetary side, you know, maybe it's time to start tapering. So I'm curious how, you know, Anthony, you're viewing when and if the Fed starts to talk about tapering and uh, also the reaction the markets might have if we do or do not get uh, any fiscal stem. Uh, and it's, it's really in our goal towards getting into normal markets and also where we can get into hunt and fish and get a nice porterhouse. Well, now, did you, I also noticed, Saperstein, you completely deflected from the question that I asked you. What's up with that? Is, Do you own Bitcoin? Well, Are you putting your clients in Bitcoin? Before you answer, Anthony, I want to hear that from very deft move from Rich Saperstein of Hightower Treasury not. Partners. And we are not putting our clients in Bitcoin. I do own something related to uh, mining. So I own a miner, but I don't own Bitcoin directly. Okay, uh, why? Why are you not putting your clients in Bitcoin? Because I suffer from what uh, Anthony's talking about. Oh, you're, you're too it's old? Basically, no, basically, I, I like liquid assets. I like things I understand. And I, I've stayed away from it. And it hasn't hurt me at all relative to the performance we've been having. Okay. But there's no question that my, my kids, they're in it. Uh, they're participating. I think Anthony raises a great point between a 97 and a 25-year-old. This is a transitional you know, investment that younger people are making. And uh, that's the handoff. Okay. I, I at least wanted to get an answer from you, Rich Saperstein. All right, uh, Anthony, you can answer the first question that he asked you about the Fed. We had to get well, the facts I mean, out first. L listen, Rich doesn't need advice from me, but the generic advice I'm giving to people 
is learn more about it. Don't be afraid of it. And for us, we would like to own, we'd like to suggest everybody own a little bit of it. And I would tell Rich right now, once you own a little bit, it's what Sailor said to me, once you buy your first Bitcoin, you're going to be saying to yourself, wow, I need to be longer Bitcoin. On the more philosophical question that Rich is raising about stimulus, fiscal and monetary policy, we have to deal with the world the way it is, not the way we want it to be. In a normative world, we wouldn't have those two things and we'd have more price discovery in the market and less, we'd be less prone to bubbles. But in the world we're living in right now, if we step back 50 years from now and write an economic historical analysis, we were in a massive transition that started in 2007. The Fed stepped in to try to help the near-term economy get through these massive transitions. Mm -hmm. One was a global financial crisis. One was a pandemic. And the Fed, both the fiscal side of it and the monetary side of it, are going to be with us, Rich, whether we like it or not. And so we have to deal with the world in that way. They're not leaving anytime soon, is my message. Anthony, i got to bounce. It's good to see you. We'll see you soon. That's Anthony Scaramucci, Skybridge, of course, with us today. Have a good weekend. We'll see you soon. Coming up. After the break, Disney's the worst performer in the Dow today. We'll talk about that stock, what you should do if you own it. We'll do it next. Edward Jones, who knows that just like life, financial planning isn't only about long-term goals. It's about the moments big and small along the way. And when it comes to achieving everyday financial goals, Edward Jones works hard to connect you with someone you can trust professionally and personally. That's why they created their free financial advisor matching tool to help you find a financial advisor in your community. When you take the quiz and get your matches, don't expect just a list of resumes. You'll also see each financial advisor's story and personal interests. And when it's time to meet for the first time, they'll focus on your story. Asking questions to understand where you're headed and why. Because Edward Jones knows that at the end of the day, behind every financial goal is a life goal. And that's what really matters. To learn more and find your financial advisor partner, take the quiz at match.edwardjones.com. Welcome back. I'm Rahel Solomon, and here is your CNBC News update at this hour. Thousands of Palestinians are leaving their homes, seeking refuge from Israeli tank fire and airstrikes in the northern portion of the Gaza Strip. Israel says that it's targeting a network of tunnels built by militants to stop Hamas rocket attacks. Democrats and Republicans on the House Homeland Security Committee announcing today that they've reached a deal to create a bipartisan panel to investigate the January 6th assault on the Capitol. But then minutes later, House GOP leader Kevin McCarthy said he didn't know anything about it and has concerns. And in Oklahoma, a high-speed police chase ending with a crash. So the suspect here was wanted for threatening someone with a gun. After that collision that you see there, well, he attempted to get away on foot. Fortunately, no one was seriously hurt, but a nearby business owner of a liquor store telling the local NBC station, apparently it's never a dull moment on that corner. Scott, I'll send it back to you. Okay, we appreciate it, Rahel. Thank you, Rahel Solomon. All right, Disney shares mentioned it before the break. Worst performer in the Dow today. They missed on streaming subs. That's where we're going to begin the conversation because that really, Shannon, is the headline and the concern there, right? Okay, so maybe they had some of the same issues that Netflix had, but Disney charges a lot less for its streaming service than Netflix does. So if that's slowing and something you're already paying less for, how much of a concern is that to you? Well, it is a little bit of a concern. We trimmed the stock back on March 15th. Um, it's still a large position for us, but we felt like a lot of the 
the um, enthusiasm around streaming and the stay-at-home story um, was going to potentially be in jeopardy over the course of the next couple of quarters. But when you look at the actual data and you think about the progression of what happened with Netflix and their subscribers, this is in not at all dissimilar to what Disney's reporting. You want more international subscribers, you lower the price. Average revenue per user becomes a, a lower number as you begin to grow the service over the next few years. It's only recently that Netflix has been able to create a, a path towards increasing prices here in the United States and have those be sticky enough so that they're not losing subscribers. So I think when you look at Disney right now, if you're thinking about buying it, there's two things on the horizon that are likely to happen. You've got parks revenue that's clearly going to increase. You're going to get more free cash flow, which is, by the way, why you own the stock before Disney. Disney Plus, and you could see a dividend next year. So I think if you don't own Disney now, this is a good entry point. I have a full position, so I'm not adding to it here, but I wouldn't get too caught up in the subscriber numbers because this is a path that we've seen before. And frankly, as a Netflix owner, it's not one that keeps me up at night. Degas, you own it. You suggest there's too much focus on the subs. How can there possibly be too much focus on the subs? That's the whole game in town. I mean, not the whole game, but you know what I'm talking about. Well, Scott, I would disagree with you because the subscription uh, Disney Plus only makes up about 25% of the revenue. If you look at the largest portion is the media, and that's about 45%. So what's going to happen as we reopen? There's going to be more ad dollars. Also, we are looking at the studios, another about 15%. So these are the places that Disney has a great opportunity to grow. It's a transformative company, and this is a company that we, th we see that's going to have outperformance going forward. Right. I mean, we are talking about a growth engine, right? The, it, it may be a smaller part of the revenue mix, as you say, but it's probably a much larger part of the growth trajectory of a Disney, wouldn't you say? Well, once again, I'm breaking it down by where the revenue comes from now. It's a fast growth. However, you have to look at where is the majority of the revenue coming from, and that's where Disney actually outdoes everyone else in the field. There's a lot of competition in streaming, but where does Disney dominate? Parks, studios, media. That's what you focus on if you're a holder, a long-term holder in Disney. Yeah, our parent company, Comcast, has something to say about that domination with the parks and the media and all that, too. Just saying. Universal. All right, we'll take a quick break. Pete's got unusual activity. We'll do it next. Before the break, check out the S&P sectors. Energy's leading. Consumer staples are lagging. We're back after this. Support for this program is provided by Chevron. Demand for energy is projected to continue rising in the future. To help keep up, Chevron is increasing their U.S. oil and gas production, and they're innovating to help do it responsibly across their operations, including their Gulf of Mexico facilities, which are some of the world's lowest carbon intensity operations, helping supply energy that's affordable, reliable, and ever cleaner. That's energy in progress. Learn more at chevron.com slash meeting demand. All right, Pete, unusual. What do you see for us, uh, for us today? Yeah. All right. Yeah, I'm going to start off with Airbnb, Scott. Now, this one's pretty interesting because this is one of those stocks that was well over $200 a share. It pulled back significantly. Yesterday, when the stock was trading about 134 we had some buyers of the May 50, 155 calls. As a matter of fact, they bought about 5,000 of those. But today, they're back in here again, and now they're buying about 10,000 of the May 150 calls, Scott. So 
Pretty aggressive buying. Stock was about 138 at the time. It's, got, it's jumped up a little bit, not a lot yet, but those options were going for anywhere between $1.70 and a little over $3. So pretty aggressive buying two days in a row. Somebody expecting this to be uh, a stock that's going to move very, very rapidly because May expiration is coming up very quickly on us. Number two, I've got an interesting one for you. Under Armour, you and I know this stock really, really well. Mm-hmm. Stock was just underneath 19, and we got a buyer of 6,000 of the May 19 calls. Again, expiration very soon but those options were only going for about 35 cents to about 50 cents so in terms of cost not a lot of cost but expecting a pretty rapid move out of both of these stocks over the next week or so to see how fast and in it can they actually explode to the upside under armor is already there but can airbnb get up to those kind of numbers this could be pretty interesting if they do so you own the uh, under armor calls i do i own the under armor calls i also own the airbnb calls as well I ask you, I mean, I ask you about Under Armour because for somebody who hasn't liked Nike for such a long period of time and has always said on this program that you prefer Lulu, um, is this going to be just an options play for you for UA or you see yourself buying the equity too? No, I see this more as an options play. I like the company. They do have a lot of missteps, though, Scott, and that's bothered me for a really long time, and they they seem to do this often, whereas Lulu did it early on, but ever since then, they've been actually executing to perfection, I think, to the upside, especially with the e-commerce. So Lulu's still my my stock when I'm talking about the athletic world, the athleisure world. I got you. All right, Pete, thank you. Three Dow stocks, they are set to report earnings next week. We'll talk about them. Home Depot, Walmart, Cisco Systems are the three. We'll set you up when we come back. All right, welcome back. A big week of earnings coming up. There is the calendar, Walmart, Target, Home Depot, Cisco, and more. I know most people own Home Depot. I do want to start out with Walmart, though. Pete, you've got the calls, and we'll get to Depot in a second, which you own as well. Mm -hmm. I'm looking at Walmart at 139.50 right now. The 52-week high is 153 and change. Is this the week or is next week going to be the week that sets Walmart in motion to get back towards that level? I do think so, Scott, and I think so because I think both uh, Walmart and Target, who's reporting, I think they're just positioned so well coming out of the pandemic, going into the pandemic, of course, because of the essentials, but coming out of it as well. And just like I talk about with Target, I think there's a certain stickiness there, Scott. I think all of the new subscribers to all the different types of, of shopping that people are doing, I think that's going to be sticky for Walmart. The only issue, of course, is the fact that they have so much on the grocery side that that does affect their margins. But other than that, I think it's going to be a pretty big quarter once again for Walmart. Now, without telling me that Brian Cornell is the greatest human being on planet Earth, Pete, which I don't want you Look to at do. The stock, man. I don't want you to do. <laughs> okay. Don't do it. All I right. want you to tell me. Don't do it. I want you to tell me yeah. why Target has so dramatically outpaced Walmart from a share price perspective. Okay, over a year, seventy-six okay. percent really for Target, thirteen percent for Walmart. Over three, over yeah. one month, three month, and year to date, Target's in the green, um, handsomely so. <laughs> Walmart hasn't done anything, and it's negative. Why? Right. Well, I think it, it does come down to the fact that Walmart did make that move and then it paused. Right. And, and meanwhile, Target 
because of the stickiness that I'm talking about here, and I'm talking about all these digital sales, all the different things that Target's been doing that everybody's been trying to do as well, but the execution that they've done there, Scott, I think when you look at it, and I've always brought this up, and this is there's twofold really right now what we're looking at. Target still today trades at a cheaper valuation than Walmart just so everybody understands. So it's still less expensive, despite the fact that it's made the move that you've talked about. So when you look at this and you look also at margins and Target's margins versus Walmart, it's not even close because it's only 20% of their business model is in the grocery section. So they just continue to do these partnerships. They continue to do the right thing. And when you look at it and from almost every perspective and you put one against the other, you can understand why Target's outperformed and they still have room to outperform I think going forward. All right. Um, now to the deflector, otherwise known as Rich Saperstein. What about <laughs> Home Depot? Because, Rich, this is a week in which we saw the ITB, the XHB, a lot of the home builder names pull back somewhat dramatically. What's up with this trade now? Look, we like Home Depot. Uh, 2% yield, 25 times earnings is a bit expensive, but we have a 5.5% free cash flow yield, so we like that. Now, why do we own the stock? We have this urban to suburban flight. There's incredible demand going on now in these stores. You can hardly get in there on the weekends. There's high consumer savings rate, stim checks, uh, increasing uh, demand for homes in the suburban and the rural areas, and high savings rates. So, We think earnings are going to be very strong. I think supply chain disruptions are a problem. I'm trying to buy a plastic resin shed for my garden. I can't find it anywhere. So I think supply chain is really going to be the key to Home Depot uh, managing that going forward. All right. All right. We'll see. All right. Ask Halftime is next. You can send your questions by video. We'll play them on the air. Email us. Ask Halftime at CNBC.com. We'll be right back. It is time for Ask Halftime, and Shannon, you are up first with a video question. Hey, CNBC, Logan Schreier here, recent grad from University of Alabama, Roll Tide. We're just wondering on your thoughts on JD, the China stock. All right, Shannon, what do you think? Well, thanks for the question, Logan. So JD is a competitor of Alibaba, which we own. And we think about, you know, the potential for what Pete talked about earlier, which is transactions being done digitally. That's going to continue for the Chinese consumer as well. There is going to be likely some overhang um, as it relates to China-U.S. relations on Chinese stocks over the next couple of quarters. But JD might actually outperform Alibaba in the short term, given the spend that Alibaba is making. Okay, thank you. Liz Young to you from Daryl. Have I missed the window to own airline stocks? What do you think? Hi, Daryl. I don't think you've missed it. There are two sets of airline passengers. The first set is the leisure passenger, who is price sensitive. The second set is the business traveler, who is not as price sensitive, a higher margin passenger. That hasn't come back yet. More money to be made. Okay, thank you. Pete, video question. Let's watch. Hi, this is Trey from Pete's home state of Minnesota. I want to get Pete's thoughts on the CELH Celsius Holdings. What do you think, Pete? Celsius Holdings. It's up 706% in the last year. Yeah, it's a name that I bought a while back, and I'm really, I love it. My daughter talked me into it, and I think it's a great company. They just had earnings the other day, and you take a look at those numbers, and you can understand why uh, I like it. They're also starting to steal a little bit of the market share from Red Bull, from Monster, and I think that's going to continue. So I love the name, and I think it's going a lot higher. Okay, Degas, roll the video. 
Hi, I'm Julian from Germany, and I am a young investor. Pfizer, BioNTech, and Moderna are delivering hundreds of millions of vaccine doses and will make billions in additional earnings. So why are these stocks going down? Is something fundamentally wrong now with vaccine stocks, or is this a buying opportunity? Thanks, and love the show. All right, we appreciate that and appreciate the question. What do you think, Degas? Maybe it's about the, the talk about sharing the, the IP. I don't know. You, you tell me. Yeah, Julian, first of all, this is a great question by a young investor. Well, we like and we own Pfizer because of the deep pipeline. What's occurring with the, uh, this particular uh, with the vaccine? That's been very positive. But what's happened with the pandemic, there's been less doctor's visits. And so there's less prescriptions being written by doctors and that's impacting revenues. But so we like uh, Pfizer out of those three, less volatile, deeper pipeline, go with Pfizer. Okay, thank you. Lastly, Rich Saperstein to the video. Hi, this is Ryan from Ohio. Just got my tax returns back and I'm ready to buy. Should I invest in GM or Ally? Thank you. All right, he's got some cash in his pocket, looking to buy a stock, what do you think? I'd go with GM, which is the comeback kid, especially if you looked at that mid-engine Corvette, which Scott's probably going to go buy at the end of the show. They've got exciting innovation, design. They've got a great partnership with uh, Cruise and Lyft. So I'd be owning GM here. I'm trying to get back in my good graces. I know exactly what you're doing. All right, we'll, we'll take a quick break. We'll come back. We'll do final trades next. It's the show. Don't sweat it. The Halftime Report now has a podcast, market-moving interviews, call of the day, unusual activity, and, of course, Ask Halftime. Look for us on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcasting app and subscribe to the Halftime Pod today. All right, let's do finals. Liz Young, start us off, please. I am looking at consumer staples. I think no masks means more parties, and that means people are going to buy food and beverages, even if the prices go up. All right. Sounds good to me. Shan? Uh, Salesforce. You've probably heard it was down this week. That's great. Huge total addressable market and a flexible platform that can be used for a lot of different types of businesses. Mr. Wright. Yeah, so we added to EOG Resources, one of the largest independent uh, oil and natural gas providers. And we like the fact dividend yield of 2% plus the management bonuses are going to be tied to transition uh, carbon emissions. Outstanding company. Okay. My man Pete, what do you have? I'm seeing a lot of stuff that's connected to the whole reopen trade, Scott. Mm -hmm. uh, one of the areas is the casinos. I see a lot of activity in there. It seems like almost every single name is hitting, but I'm going to give you a Las Vegas Sands. They keep buying and keep buying and keep buying in the options world. I think it's going higher. I got th only 30 seconds, Rich Saperstein, but you bought Mercado Libre, Nextera Energy, and Zoetis, and you sold Merck. You want to give me a quickie? Less, like, 10 seconds? I like Zoetis because pet ownership has increased. And they sell into the pet market. Nextera Energy is a green play and an urban to suburban flight to Florida. Okay. And I would really focus on that as a kind of a high price utility. Right. But both those companies are going to have rising cash flows. All right, good stuff. Great weekend, everybody. You've been listening to CNBC's Halftime Report, the podcast. You can always catch us live weekdays at 12 Eastern, only on CNBC. Sometimes it takes a different approach to help you unlock your true potential. With Capella University's game-changing FlexPath learning format, you gain relevant skills you can apply to your career right away. 
Earn your degree from an accredited university and be confident in the quality of your education. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. Capella University is accredited by the Higher Learning Commission. Learn more at capella.edu slash accreditation.